What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. The two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by the return of Meowbox. Meowbox is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of our good friends over at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with that being said, and welcoming back Meowbox, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, today on the show, it's a very timely episode, of course, talking about the recent induction, the long-awaited induction to the WWE Hall of Fame of the fabulous Freebirds, and that's getting the conversation started about world-class championship wrestling and where else to start when you talk about world-class championship wrestling than with somebody who saw it all down in the world-class territory former ring announcer of world-class mark lawrence joins today's program and we're so fresh off of the induction of the fabulous Freebirds that it was great to get Mark on the show and really dive into what the Freebird frenzy was like down at the old Sportatorium and a lot of the old world-class haunts down in Dallas and the Fort Worth area and all, pretty much all over Texas because the Von Erich versus Freebird rivalry, albeit a regional one, could be one of the most famous rivalries in the history of professional wrestling. And a little side note about having Mark Lawrence on, We've never gotten this 
in depth about the world-class territory. We've been able to have Bruce Hart come on and talk about Stampede. We've been able to have Joe Malenko come on and talk about Florida. But this is the first time we really get down and dirty talking about the world-class championship wrestling territory with somebody who really lived it every single day of his life. And with that being said, John, I want to welcome you in right now and really start to talk about how, you know, the fabulous Freebirds, we say the long overdue induction to the WWE Hall of Fame, and how there's really nobody else we could turn to in a time like this than the great Mark Lawrence to get his take on the fabulous Freebirds induction into that WWE Hall of Fame. Well, Chad, first and foremost, we're fresh off of WrestleMania 32 down there in Dallas, and obviously fresh off the Hall of Fame ceremony as well, which was down there in Dallas, and no more of a perfect guy to come on the show week after WrestleMania than Mark Lawrence, the former WCCW announcer, legendary voice of Texas wrestling, and, you know, obviously since WrestleMania was in Dallas and the Hall of Fame's in Dallas, who was inducted but the fabulous Freebirds? And who was a big part of their career was the voice of most of their career, and that was obviously Mark. So just a perfect guest and the perfect tie-in that we could put into the show, especially coming off Mania this week, or excuse me, last week. Well, you know, we talk about the legendary rivalry, and who better to talk about that rivalry than Mark? You know, man, that was there, a front and center for most of it, whether it was in the Sportatorium, or not. We do get into a lot of the sportatorium and the, the history of it and everything else. And we also get into the world-class DVD that was made, the Heroes of World Class. And we talk a little bit about the WWE one that was made that wasn't quite as good as that one. But, you know, nonetheless, we do get down and dirty into the Freebirds and Von Erich feud, which kind of made world-class what it was. And it was one of the greatest feuds of all time, and one of the most interesting feuds, obviously, being that the Von Erichs were who they were, and, and the Freebirds were so out there and so outrageous with the music and, and the rock and the dancing and everything else. They just had it. I mean, they were the class of the class, some of the top heels in the business, especially at that point. And what a tandem what a threesome that they were when buddy jack roberts bam bam terry gordon and michael psa's later on obviously with jimmy jam more towards wcw but as i'm sticking with mark it was great to get his thoughts on the freebirds entering the hall of fame we got to talk all about the freebirds career what each of them meant to him and that was one of my favorite parts of the interview not just the, the hall of fame stuff because obviously that's a little bit more topical with the freebirds entering the WWE hall of fame but the in-depthness of, you know, the characters and the feud and what he remembers mostly and his favorite parts and what he remembers fondly. So that was some of the best stuff, I think, in the interview. You know, you mentioned those DVDs, both the Heroes of World Class and the WWE's Triumph and Tragedy of World Class Championship Wrestling. You look at them and you see who they interviewed. And one thing that Mark actually really points out is that he's only on the Heroes of World Class. And he plays a major part in that Heroes of World Class DVD. And he's not even really included in the WWE's product, which is kind of a shame. I mean, look, you can't bring on everybody, obviously. Uh, Bill Mercer, another one who is just so identifiable with World Class and is on so many 
many television programs that World Class produced that, you know, you have to have one or the other, in my opinion. But The Heroes of World Class is such a standout documentary uh, overall. But you think about how those identifiable voices really start to uh, really take the shape of what the promotion's identity is. And you can think about whoever your favorite announcer was growing up. And that person to you is going to be identifiable with that product that you grew up watching. But the impact of Mark Lawrence on World Class Championship Wrestling uh, is definitely one of how the territory was shaped, the sound, uh, what it was like for a big match, and hearing his voice. And really, the announcers, like I said of the day, when they're so identifiable with the promotion, maybe it's the era that you grew up in. Uh, or when you started watching, but obviously uh, their identifiable voice plays a huge part into the overall product and the perception of that fan. Yeah, you know what, Chad? His impact on World Class and how him and a lot of the announcers of his day are so identifiable with the era of their respective promotions and their respective product. Now you think about it, Mark is so in tune and so remembered for being in world class and you, there's not a lot of that you think of today obviously when you think of mid-south you obviously think of jim ross i mean jim ross is the greatest of all time regardless so you kind of think of him in a few different eras maybe the attitude era maybe uh, mid-south a little bit maybe some early wcw stuff but these guys are just identifiable gordon Soley's so identifiable and you just think about it and it's kind of missing that in today's wrestling and we talk about that a little bit with mark but you know, no offense to the Michael Coles of the world, but he's not going to go down. He's not going to be kind of remembered for anything, really, because the announcers of today just aren't as good as they were. And I like Mark even more than Bill Mercer, and I thought that uh, his voice was more identifiable with world class. I mean, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I just thought that, and I loved his voice. I love his enthusiasm, and I feel like being a great announcer like Mark was is kind of a lost art in today's world. I mean, right now, Mauro Ronaldo is probably the best going, and I love him, and he's awesome. But when you really think about those age-old announcers, I even love the guy like Tony Schiavone, who was the voice of WCW. I mean, those guys seem to be missing, and we do talk to Mark in great length about what made him such a great announcer. Why was he so remembered? You know, what made his routine work what what did he think what did he grab here and we learned that he wasn't always a uh, big wrestling fan in fact he wasn't at all but he studied it he learned it and he became great at it so that was a great great part of the interview obviously anything talking about world class is interesting to us because we absolutely love that and that era in the 80s when world class was in the prime and world class was on top of the business was some of the best and we do go through some of the great moments we talk about carrie von eric against Rick Flair in the big stadium match, uh, Kerry winning the world title for his brother. We go into great detail all of Von Eric's deaths and, and tragedies and steroids and drugs. You name it, we talk about it. We go into it. We even talk a little Stone Cold Steve Austin. So this was a really, really good one. And um, you will not be sorry because this is one of the greatest episodes we've done as far as down south in the world class area and defining a promotion like that and a territory like that so you folks i guarantee you will you will love this one absolutely such a great episode a lot of fun to look into that world-class territory and so much more to come in the two-man power trip of wrestling's next couple of months a busy few months we have a lot of surprises in store a lot of things going on behind the scenes at the two-man power trip of wrestling and as always john will give you the plugs the two-man power trip of wrestling business but please reach out to us if you've got anything going on you want to say hi you want to just 
Shoot the Breeze, talking about an episode. Hit us up on the two-man power trip of wrestling plugs coming your way in just a minute, courtesy of Primetime Pause. But first, just want to remind everybody two things. First, on April 16th, this coming Saturday, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it's the icons of pro wrestling and comic book collector fest. Go to tmptofwrestling.com for more information and join us with our guests, Kevin Thorne, Shane Douglas, and Justin Credible for a day of meet and greets, picture taking, and a lot of chatting about two-man power trip of wrestling happenings with three of our favorite guests of all time. And also, we did welcome back Meow Box to the program with today's episode. And of course, you're going to hear more about Meow Box being back in the coming weeks with John and his cat Lucy. But head on over to MeowBox.com and use the code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first monthly box subscription. And take advantage of what Meow Box has to offer. So many great things, including the one box can promotion, where for every can purchased, another can gets donated to a shelter cat. And that is a great thing. But like I said, John is going to be giving you more information about Meow Box in the coming weeks. So welcome back, Meow Box, to the program. And John, with that being said, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the great Mark Lawrence. Yes, Meow Box, baby. They are the best. They have a little service called One Box Can where every Meow Box purchase will get you a can of food donated to a shelter cat on your behalf. So that is excellent. Also remember, all edible items are made in the USA or Canada, so you know where your edible items are coming from. Now, if you have a picky cat like mine, Lucy, who uh, has a bit of a special diet, you can replace your edible items with toys and surprises, which little Lucy absolutely loves, and that is great of Meowbox. So just remember, folks, that is Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. Again, Meowbox.com, promo code POWERTRIP10 for 10% off your first subscription. Now, for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Rasslin' Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, check out the feed for prior great episodes featuring the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Stan the Lariat Henson, Dale the Patriot Wilkes, Matt Morgan, Homicide, and so, so, so many more. So please check that out. Also, you can check us out on Player FM, the I-95 Sports Network, and the Top Rope Press Radio Network on TopRopePress.com. Also, please check out our Pro Wrestling Tea Store. It is new and it is awesome. So check out the TMPT, Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling page on ProWrestlingTees.com and order one of our shirts today. Also, wire over there. Scroll over to the Kevin Thorne page where you can become a member of the Bite Club. And speaking of Kevin Thorne, if you're looking to book Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email bookings at TMPTofWrestling.com. That is bookings at TMPTofWrestling.com. And now, without any further ado, the former world-class championship wrestling announcer and now-turned-minister, the legendary Mark Lawrence. Please enjoy.
Joining us on the line is somebody who is a tried-and-true member of one of the most talked-about promotions in the history of professional wrestling. We've heard about the triumphs and tragedies, but we've also heard about the heroes. And now it's time to get an insight into world-class championship wrestling that maybe on this show we've never gotten before. And how could we start anywhere else but with one of the legendary voices of world-class, and that is the great... Mark Lawrence, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, and it's almost uh, very fitting to have you join us uh, timing-wise in terms of what's going on in the professional wrestling world. And not sure how much you either follow it or know what's going on, but of course, WrestleMania taking place in Texas this past weekend. And one of the highlights being the induction of the fabulous Freebirds, into the WWE Hall of Fame, but with an emphasis so strongly put on the world class that having you on is a great place to start. So how, what are your thoughts on the Freebirds being a part of the WWE Hall of Fame and world class getting the old rub here in 2016 by WWE? Well, I'm very happy for the Birds. Of course, we've only got one of them left, and that, that is very sad. Uh, Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Buddy Jack Roberts were both great individuals as well as great professionals and they highlight along with Michael Hayes the reality that while much credit went to the Von Erichs and they were a great family in their own regard world class's success was based around some other incredible talents and uh, I like to tease Michael Hayes about being an obnoxious blowhard but when he goes on about the Freebirds' value to world class in that way, I say listen to that obnoxious blowhard because he's preaching the gospel. He's absolutely right. Their charisma, uh, the diversity of their personalities, their abilities both in and outside the ring made them a tremendous part of the world class wave of success and they absolutely deserve to be in any Hall of Fame where anybody will find them. Uh, that's excellent. And, of course, you know, we've all learned the story because uh, John and I grew up in the Northeast, so world class we got uh, very, very shortly, um, uh, I think a part of ESPN uh, at one point. But as the WWE obtained the footage, it's been a little bit easier to go back and fill in some gaps. So as you see the impact the Freebirds had on world class, you start with how – Michael Hayes originally came into the company and how the Freebird mania really blossomed. But from your point of view, seeing the Freebirds as the antagonist for the Von Erichs, what was the atmosphere like in the arena as you would be announcing somebody coming in and just seeing the pandemonium of the Freebirds, albeit uh, in a negative reaction, but for professional wrestling, a positive reaction for the performer? Well, the Freebirds came to the Dallas office as, as baby faces. Uh, they were the good guys. And they came in and, you know, uh, won the crowd to their side. They were complimentary of the Von Erichs and teamed with the Von Erichs. And that big change from babyface to heel uh, all came about at a big wrestling Star Wars event at Reunion Arena when Michael Hayes got frustrated with Kerry uh, Von Erich and the other Von Erich wholesomeness and wound up slamming a cage door uh, and getting involved with Carrie and Fritz, and that's where it all turned. And so uh, as that came about, the, the Freebirds became the dreaded heels and villains of the Von Erichs, and the long-standing feud 
between those two groups ensued. But it was very exciting for the fans, uh, very exciting for the fans. But understanding the psychology of pro wrestling, there's a great fine line, a very fine line, thin line, between good and evil and heel and babyface. And there were an awful lot of people out there who loved the Freebirds, even in their heelish role, and saw the Von Erichs as entitled, as not overly bright, as a little bit too much in terms of the wholesome routine, and they liked the flair and antagonistic ways of the Freebirds. So it was a tremendously exciting dynamic for the wrestling audience because you had the Von Erich diehards, uh, you had people that were on the fence who just enjoyed being in the midst of the electricity, and you had an awful lot of fabulous Freebird fans in the midst of it. So fascinating dynamic. Do you have a personally favorite moment that you witnessed with the fabulous Freebird pandemonium and the craziness uh, of the crowd reaction to them? Is there anything that really stands out to you uh, from your take? Well, the cage door night was very exciting. It was very well handled. Uh, Michael Hayes was an incredibly animated individual. He probably, uh, you know, was no better than Buddy and Terry in terms of wrestling ability. But his off-the-apron manner, his charisma, his flamboyance, his psychology... His antagonistic persona, his arrogance, made him so incredible. And so while the cage door showcased that well, any time Michael was allowed to run free and be Michael, it was exciting. And so often in our office, it was the heels who had more personality than the baby faces did. And, uh, you know, that made for... The, made them a lot more fun to be around in terms of the excitement and entertainment of it all. Right. And, of course, the office being based out of Dallas, which tying it back to what I said originally, where WrestleMania was this past weekend, and actually where Monday Night Raw is uh, as we speak. Uh, But talk about wrestling in Texas and how passionate the Texas wrestling fan is. And as you see, for an event like WrestleMania, where they're saying over 100,000 people showed up uh, this past weekend, well, they're coming from all over the world, but as the segmented fans of Texas, uh, why are they so passionate, and what made world-class in Texas be the perfect combination? Well, we're talking about the days of the old regional territories, and this Dallas office was known as being particularly rough. The level of intensity was just rougher in this office. And part of it was just the history of the office, and part of it was the fact that the Von Erich ownership was known, and there was some resentment of that. There was some resentment of the entitlement of those Von Erich boys and the favoritism and the payoffs. And so it was just a rough place to come, and you didn't come here unless you were willing to be rough. And then, of course, it was the emergence of the world class Uh, out of that Dallas office that increased television production to new levels that had never been known in the world of pro wrestling. Most wrestling productions were low-budget productions. And when you had instant replay and slow motion and uh, mini cams in the ring and microphones mounted to the turnbuckles, it brought a whole new dimension to the TV experience, which carried over to the in-person experience. 
And you look at a deal like WrestleMania, which obviously is a tremendous box office success with the high ticket prices and the huge crowd. In those days, you were making money every week. Now, it wasn't anything like 101,000 people in the revenue that generates. But when you look at every Monday night in Fort Worth and every Friday night in Dallas, uh, we're talking back in the 80s with houses running anywhere from twelve to $30,000 a night. When you're doing that 52 weeks a year, that in itself adds up to tremendous financial profits and tremendous crowds and fan support. And then you would add the Wrestling Star Wars events, an annual Parade of Champion events, a state fair event, and uh, it wasn't the big event like we saw with, with WrestleMania here in Dallas just last night, but when you add the consistency of it up, it was an incredibly impressive empire. Absolutely, for sure. And I definitely want to get back into Fritz and the Von Erickson and World Class and you know their whole stamp there. But i got to ask you, how did you actually get into wrestling and get into World Class? Well, it was all by accident. Uh, I was a broadcast major in undergraduate school. I was going to go back uh, for an extra semester. Uh, you might say I crammed a four-year program into four and a half years. And it was the summer that I had off when I should have graduated, but I was going to go back for a fall semester to finish up. And I was interested in picking up some extra work. I was doing some work in the area with the Texas State Radio Network doing sports. I was the local hockey PA guy. was doing some stringer work for Associated Press Radio and UPI Radio covering Texas Ranger locker rooms and interviewing Billy Martin and Earl Weaver and, you know, the great players, Sparky Anderson, the managers and players of that era. And the phone rang in my little bachelor pad because I was still a young man, about 22 years old, and it was a TV guy doing sports from our NBC affiliate who asked me if I was interested in a PA job that was going to be open in the area. And I thought, gee, Texas Rangers, Dallas Mavericks, who were new, the Dallas Cowboys, what could this be? Sure, I'm interested. And he said, well, Fritz Von Erich is going to call you. And I thought, oh, no, professional wrestling, that's ridiculous. I'd never been. I had no interest in it. I was totally ignorant. And I made up my mind that I just wasn't interested. Well, he was very complimentary and hung the phone up. And it wasn't 10 minutes until the phone rang again. It was this imposing voice on the other end of the line, Fritz Von Erich. And he explained to me that they had an announcer, but he was going to leave for three weeks. In those days, the Dallas show was on Sunday and the Fort Worth show was on Monday. So I needed to start on a Monday and do Monday, Sunday, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Sunday for three weeks. And, uh, well, if that's all it was, and he paid more than I was making from the other people, what did I have to lose? And he was so nice on the phone. Well, I'll give it a try. So I go over there and start in Fort Worth on a Monday and do the gig for three weeks, and it finished on a Sunday evening. And I've had to ask them who the wrestlers are. They have to tell me who they are to introduce them. But they paid promptly. They were very courteous. They were nice people. And when that last Sunday was over, which was my sixth performance with them, in that three weeks, I just thanked them and said, wow, this has been great. If you ever need anybody again, 
be sure and let me know. Well, we certainly will. We've been so thankful to have you, and, and goodbye. Well, the next night, I'd been invited out to my parents' house in West Fort Worth to have dinner, and it was about 5 or 5.30 in the evening, and Fritz von Erich's secretary found me at my parents' house and said, there's been a terrible mistake. We need you at Will Rogers Coliseum tonight for the Fort Worth TV taping because before the world-class emergence, they taped their regional show every Monday night at Will Rogers Coliseum, and it sat in the can and played in a tape on Saturday night on Channel 11 from 10 to 11.30 at night. So I ate quickly and ran home and put on a coat and tie and got down there. And it turned out they wanted me to stay on permanently. And no one ever told me about the guy I was supposedly substituting for. Did they fire him? Did he not come back from Europe where he'd been singing? Or was that just a bluff by Fritz to try me out knowing that the guy they had was not a long-term answer. I never asked the question, have always wondered, but I became the ring announcer. And I wasn't doing TV. It was just introduction of the wrestlers, greeting the crowd, promoting future events. You might say the public address guy. And that's how it started. And a couple of years, uh, well, it wasn't even that. It was a year or so into it, Bill Mercer, who was doing television, who was an ex-NFL broadcaster and Major League Baseball broadcaster, was teaching at the University of North Texas and doing football and basketball for them, so he was absent a lot. And the guy they were bringing in to take him place was horrible. I mean, he was a great guy, but he just he was boring. He didn't know what he was doing. And I thought, gee, as green as I am, I can at least put some excitement into it. So I just approached Fritz one night in the locker room. I said, Fritz, uh, Bill's got to be gone a lot. How about giving me a shot at the TV when he's gone? I think I can bring some pizzazz to it. And boy, he cussed and put his arm around me and said, I've been thinking the very same thing, Mark. I'm going to send you out to do color tonight. And boy, they loved it. So it wasn't a week or so until Bill was gone again. And I didn't know the holes yet, but I was learning. And they gave me the host of that TV show. And that's how it started. I became Bill Mercer's backup. And as all that was going on, they were having the preliminary meetings for the formation of the world-class expression, which would be centered in a syndicated recording of television. They moved the Sunday night show in Dallas to Friday and started taping that syndicated show for world syndication at the Sportatorium. And when they did that, they promoted Bill to be the host of that main new show and gave me the Channel 11 show then every week. So that's how all that emerged. And then I was Bill's backup as the ring announcer in Dallas. Crazy the way everything kind of fell into place. And it's almost supposed to be temporary, but then it becomes you know, more permanent. Very, very cool story. And I love how you, know, you almost didn't want to be a part of it, but you, you, know, you keep getting sucked in and keep getting sucked in. And it seems like that's the nature of the wrestling business. But when you became the announcer, how did you kind of create your own style? You said you were going to put more pizzazz in it. Like, what was, who were some influences, and how did you come up with that? Well, in those days, that old Channel 11 production was very simple. And it wasn't until Channel 39 reinvented this, like I've already described with the, the new technology of the replay and slow-mo and the mics and what have you, that forced Channel 11 to invest a little bit in it because their ratings were great and they should have invested in it and they finally did. 
but you didn't have color guys. It was very rare for anybody to be out there with me. I was the guy who had to explain the strategies, describe the matches, promote the upcoming cards, handle all the business, listen to the TV director. And so since the fans were listening to this same voice through all of this, I learned that it was an important part of the expression to develop a rapport with them. Fritz had already established an ethic that he wanted the wrestlers to treat the announcers, whoever they were, with courtesy and respect. Don't bump them around. Don't make them be a stooge. Because if the fans respect and trust the announcer, if they see the wrestlers doing that, then the fans will as well. Well, then I piggyback on that. Fritz told me one night I sounded great out there, but I didn't look very good. He told me to stand in front of a mirror and make some facial expressions where I was more approachable when I was on camera. Well, I thought that's good advice, and I did that, but I could also do that in my voice, and I learned to tell stories and uh, just develop a rapport with the fans, invite them based on their own context of life, and uh, that helped the ratings soar. Now, I'm not sitting here telling you that I'm the reason the show was a success, because that's not true. It's the product in the ring. It was a great talent. But an announcer that the people enjoyed and trusted was an ingredient that helped that. And I had to learn not to come across as aloof and arrogant and be somebody who was approachable, and that's the way I approach that show. And that is great because it becomes more authentic at that point. And obviously you were great. Bill Mercer was great as well, but you obviously, I mean, kind of more so to us anyway, that, you know, the kind of voice of world class and you kind of took it over and you kind of took it by storm and you became a mainstay for longer than, you know, you thought you were 10 plus years, you, you know, you were the announcer there. But tell us a little bit about this sportatorium. Cause you mentioned it kind of, you know, a little bit there in passing, but the legendary sportatorium down there, can you talk to us a little bit about the atmosphere the building and how crazy that place would get sometimes? Well, if you go way back prior to, my era, I'm talking way back into the 60s, Dallas and Fort Worth were very separate offices for wrestling. There was a Ken Moore family that had it in Fort Worth and a and an Ed McLemore in Dallas. And the Sportatorium in those days had a big neon sign on the front of it that said Ed McLemore Sportatorium. And when Fritz asserted himself for the territorial rights, he basically bought out Ed McLemore and Ken Moore and combined the office into a Dallas-Fort Worth office. And he inherited the lease rights to that sportatorium that was owned by a refrigerated warehouse guy in Dallas named Alford. They just leased it. And in the McLemore days, a rival promoter, so, so the rumor said, had gotten jealous and set the thing on fire. And about a third of that building burned down in the 60s, and it was never rebuilt. They just walled off the part that was damaged and tore it down. That's why in the world-class days you had three sides of, of seating that would go way up high and one side that was just three or four rows and then a sheet metal wall. And that's because that, that part of that building was burned down and had never been rebuilt. But it was just a big old metal building. It had uh, wrought iron posts and beams across the roof. It was covered in sheet metal as the exterior, and the ceiling was asbestos, 
and fiberglass, which you know is a cancer risk and a fire risk. The wiring looked like something out of the Munsters. It had cobwebs hanging from it. There was no air conditioning in the structure, but they opened some big perpendicular panels at the top of the seating area to let some of the heat out and get a breeze through there on the hot summer evenings. It did have some small gas heaters mounted from the poles down near the ring, so in the winter it could be comfortable. It was never warm, but it was comfortable, and when you fill it with people, that also helped heat it up. But in the summers, it was unbearably hot. The temperature in the ring would easily be 115 degrees under the hot lights and the TV production stuff. So it was stifling. But the excitement was so great and the product was so good that people filled it up week after week after week in spite of those circumstances. Hard bench seats. First time I ever did TV over there, I was doing an interview filling in for Bill Mercer and I, I thought to myself, just for a minute, gee, this could really turn out to be a big deal. And about that time, a rat uh, that was about two <laughs> feet long ran across a beam right over my head. And that's when I winked to the Lord in heaven and said, well, I hadn't exactly made the big time yet. But uh, the Sportatorium was a place unlike any other, but boy, it had atmosphere. Was that kind of your favorite place to be? The announcer, I mean, obviously there were some huge venues that you guys would run and stadiums and stuff, but was the Sportatorium kind of more special to you because of how crazy it could be? Well, the Sportatorium obviously had the atmosphere. Uh, There's not a greater place on earth. Chicago Stadium for the Blackhawks in their heyday, Boston Garden, uh, Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, the old Comiskey Parks and Tiger Stadiums. There isn't any place that had better atmosphere than the Dallas Sportatorium. And you didn't have to have it full, because in those first few years it was not full. But it was so intimate that if you had it a third full of people, you had electricity. And then when it was jammed, it was just, you know, you could cut the electricity with a knife. But I also loved the Will Rogers venue because that was a great old historic building in Fort Worth that I'd grown up with, been to the rodeo, been to the circus. And uh, while it didn't have the the noise level of the sportatorium, when we got a good house there, it could also be very exciting. And it gave you the atmosphere of a big-time building because it had the big balcony and the box seats and the floor and was much nicer than the sportatorium. You know, it was air-conditioned and heated and well-lit and a great sound system. So it was two different worlds, and I enjoyed both of them, but I was kind of partial to Will Rogers. World-class, so many great memories, so many great matches, so many great guys coming through there. But it's funny looking back in kind of an ironic, crazy way that a lot of people remember world-class for all the tragedies that occurred and the Von Erichs obviously being front and center. What was it like as kind of, you know, David Von Erich, that whole thing happened and you know, he passes away. Was that just uh, like a huge deflation into a company that was basically one of the hottest territories going up until that point? Yeah, the David deal was sad. Uh, it was confusing because no one would really come clean as to what happened. Uh, I'm not sure that I can tell you what happened because there's too many different stories. It sounds like it could have been prevented had he had sense enough to ask for help. 
But it was a sad day because we had lost one of the great stars. And over time, we began to learn that David was most like his dad and probably had the fortitude to run that office in due time, which his brothers never had. They had their talents. They had their zone of effectiveness. But they didn't have that hard-nosed passion to be the businessman. They were too flaky. They were too immature. They were too narcissistic, too image-oriented. And so what proved over time was that the office lost its heir apparent to the throne when Fritz was going to retire and get tired of it. There wasn't going to be anybody there. Now, we didn't know that at the time, but we began to learn that over the coming years. But his death did not hurt the promotion. In fact, the promotion had its biggest years after his death. It's when the next death began to occur uh, with Mike Von Erich. It's when Kerry got himself in trouble and was lost for a while due to running his motorcycle into the back of a Denton County police car on drugs, cutting his foot off. All that was kept in secret. They uh, tried to put it back together, did vascular surgery. They thought they were successful, but he didn't follow the doctor's orders, tried to walk on it too fast, ruined the surgery, then they had to do the prosthesis, and then, of course, he winds up losing his life. Uh, it was the series of things that began to add up to have the demoralizing effect. But there were others that were in trouble, too. You know, we lost Bruiser Brody, who got murdered. Uh, we lost Gino Hernandez to a drug overdose. Uh, there were some other tragedies as well because the office never adjusted to the stardom that it developed. No one ever sat down and coached these guys with ethical decisions, moral decisions, substance abuse, how to set boundaries, how to recognize people that are taking advantage of you. They never had any financial coaching. They never had any relationship coaching. They were just... Uh, treated the way it had been, you know, when it was a fraction of its size in years before. The office staff never increased. And so that all provided an atmosphere for the crash, which really began to start in, you know, 1985 and 86, uh, as it started its downward spiral. It still could have done some great things uh, had it had a better atmosphere. The Von Erich deal was a big challenge, but it didn't have to kill it. But as a result, that became the symbol in conjunction with all this other stuff, and it really took a dive. And, of course, you also have to look at the reality that Fritz was the first promoter through this syndicated show to have his wrestler seen in somebody else's market. That was the first infringement upon all these national, regional territories. And all of Fritz's promoters... The Gary Hart's, the Ken Mantell's, the Mickey Grant's, the TV producers are saying, Fritz, you've got to take advantage of what you've got here because if you don't, someone else will. And he wouldn't do it. He was not a visionary thinker. He thought God was after him with his boys in trouble. He would not run against his longtime friends and colleagues. And that hurt the office as much as anything because the top talent saw that Fritz was not willing to run it as a visionary leader, and that's when they fled to Ted Turner in Atlanta or to Vince McMahon in New York 
because those guys were visionary leaders and they were going to do and were doing what Fritz wouldn't. So the demise of the office was not just the Von Erich tragedies. It was the other tragedies of the other wrestlers, the poor management of the office, and the lack of that visionary aspect that contributed fourfold to the demise of the world-class name. And that was so well said by you right there, and it's perfectly said, and you kind of said it right in the middle with something that I wanted to touch on. There was a little bit of a substance abuse problem, obviously, with uh, not only the Von Erichs, but a lot of guys down there, Gino and Andrews mentioned. Do you think there was not only a big problem in world class at that point, but just a big problem in wrestling in general? There may have been. <clears throat> My frame of reference was limited to the Dallas and Fort Worth offices. Uh, I was green. I was ignorant. I, in many ways, was very sheltered because I didn't travel with the guys. I didn't do the spot shows. Uh, I did some work in San Antonio and Oklahoma for them, but I'd usually drive myself. Uh, so I was mercifully immune from that stuff. And it's almost... It's almost miraculous or like destiny that I got drawn into this job to begin with. But equally as uh, providential or coincidental is the fact that I was sheltered from all that. Uh, I was never drawn into that. I was never offered that stuff. Uh, I had one wrestler one night ask me for some painkillers after I'd had my wisdom teeth out, I think when I was 23 or 24 years old. But that was about the extent of the exposure. But it was a bad situation. Definitely, and, and obviously with World Class, it hit a lot of um, you know the guys right right in the uh, breadbasket there because there's so many tragedies obviously that struck, and it was a shame because there's so much great talent there. And like you said, maybe if they had a little counseling or maybe a little help, or maybe they realized what they were doing, maybe they could have gotten help. But can't help but think of the Von Erichs, obviously when you're talking about World Class, but I can't help but think of Kevin Von Erich. And him kind of being the, the the lone survivor, what do you kind of think about that? Is is that just you know one of the greatest tragedies? Basically, I mean he's one of the you know the last Von Erichs left. Yes, Kevin has had to endure way too much pain. He's walked a journey of life that very few people will have to endure, with the magnitude and the rep- repetition of the tragedies of his family. Uh, even his dad's cancer, his dad died of cancer, it was in the brain, uh, affected his brain in some ways that even his dad became somewhat abusive to Kevin in the latter years of his life, which is unintentional, and I wouldn't criticize Fritz that way if it weren't related to the disease. But Kevin went through a lot, and uh, he really just kind of shut down and disappeared uh, and his selling of all the rights of that stuff to New York was not only a financial decision, but a decision to, you know, really once and for all step out of that. But it's his boys, Ross and Marshall, that have reignited his fire. And, you know, he's getting some gigs for them, and he's been, you know, interviewed with some of the WWE stuff. And uh, so that's kind of gotten his fire. And he's a man, you know, who's older than I am, and I'm 56. Uh, but Kevin has kind of had a resurgence, and he's been able to stay married. And his boys are good-looking guys. They've they've got some talent and a future. Uh, so that's been fun to watch. But Kevin had to go through too much. It was all. It was nice at the Hall of Fame for uh, the Freebirds to have 
Kevin Von Erich come out very briefly, uh, albeit in the wrestling community, uh, quite criticized that he wasn't the inductor of the Freebirds and the WWE wanted to go more of the modern route and having a current tag team do so. But he did give a nod to the Suns carrying on the legacy uh, of the Von Erichs, which is a nice touch. And TNA Wrestling actually gave them the platform to perform a few years back, which was nice. And, of course, you know, in true Von Erich fashion, they uh, they have great talent. They're great in the ring, and hopefully one day they uh, they do some pretty big things. But speaking of big things, how about some of the big names that came through uh, on a kind of visiting basis? You know, you think of your Ric Flair as the NWA champion. You think of Andre the Giant. Uh, are there any that really stand out to you? Uh, obviously, Andre might, but uh, are there any moments or any of uh, the big names that really stand out to you as the visitors of, uh, to World Class? Well, Stone Cold Steve Austin was stunning Steve Austin, who got his start in our office. Jim Helwig was the dingo warrior who went on to be the ultimate warrior. Bruiser Brody was as big a name as anybody knew in the business in those days. He was a tremendous talent. Uh, of course, we always had, the, the when it was the NWA days, in the early days of world class and prior, the NWA champion would come. It was often Ric Flair, who was just a consummate professional. Harley Race was also a champion at times. Uh, you mentioned Andre the Giant, who came. Gino Hernandez was tremendous talent uh, in this part of the country. Chris Adams emerged as a tremendous star that this office developed and created. Uh, you know, Skandor Akbar, the great manager, uh, was a nationally renowned name. Tremendous talent, tremendous brain and psychologist and teacher of the art of wrestling behind the scenes, respected by uh, wrestlers from all over the world. So there were some tremendous names that made this office very, very exciting. And, yeah, yeah definitely Skandar. I, I really wanted to ask about him, but also Gary Hart as well, and being one of those guys that is creative force, no doubt, and went on to do some very, very big things, uh, not only in World Class, where he was obviously one of the, uh, the main creative forces. Uh, but basically, post-World Class, Gary Hart and Skandar Akbar became kind of the faces of World Class. How was it with those two, and, and especially Skandar. I know he uh, he passed away a few years ago. So did Gary Hart. But um, those two being identifiable with world class, uh, how were they when you got to know them? And especially, um, I know with Gary Hart, you know he had some, uh, you know he had he had a book that actually was very uh, well received, but is out of print. But uh, tell us something maybe we don't know about both uh, Skandar and Gary Hart. Well, Gary was the booker for Fritz when I got hired. He's the one that represented all the production meetings with the TV people, whether it was me or Bill Mercer. And we would sit down for about 40 or 45 minutes before the TV taping on Monday night and go through everything. Gary was the head guy who booked the talent and was involved in the leadership of the office. Gary was a good guy. He had a great mind for the business. Uh, he just had many gifts. Gary was a little persnickety. Uh, I'm not sure I was ever one of Gary's favorites, but Gary was ferociously loyal to people that he trusted. And if he didn't trust you, he didn't have anything to do with you. And I was kind of in the middle of that. I, I would come and go. <clears throat> but I really liked Gary and thought he was a good guy. And when Gary trusted you and you were in his group, he was ferociously loyal and took care of you. And he expected to be treated the same way. 
And when some of those early payoffs from those Star Wars events, especially that big one uh, where the cage door deal occurred, Gary was just personally wounded and hurt by the payoff Fritz gave him. And when he talked to Fritz about it, Fritz tended to devalue everybody else in favor of his boys. Gary just up and quit. And Ken Mantell had been lobbying for the position, had been talking to Fritz about Gary being too conservative. And Gary had caught on to that and felt like he was being stabbed in the back anyway. And Ken was right there immediately to take over. And Ken was a master manipulator. He was a tremendous booker, a tremendous uh, production guy, choreographer, uh, dreaming up the the storylines. He was just incredible. And so both of them were good, but Ken was there during the biggest and strongest years. It was Ken that brought Akbar in, because when Gary quit, you had lost, in terms of what the fans saw, as a powerful heel manager. And so Akbar, in many ways, replaced Gary in that role until Gary re-emerged as talent in the office and later came back to do some booking again for Fritz in the latter years of, of world class. So, you know, things work around, and Ken Mantell got upset at this dynamic I've already described about Fritz not seizing the moment to go big, and Ken quit and went to work for Bill Watts over in the Louisiana area and even came back to Dallas with a little short-lived promotion called Wild West Wrestling. Uh, so, you know, I think Ken came back also. Ken was there a second run uh, and was there when the Jerry Jarrett negotiations took place, when Jarrett bought Fritz out in 1988. So interesting revolving door there as to how all that went. Yeah, and, you know, revolving door indeed, and a lot of people did, you know, grit their teeth in world class and move on to other organizations, and actually it kind of uh, triggered, you know, something I wasn't really thinking, but now that you mention it, did anybody ever approach you about leaving world class? I know, you know, you're established in Texas, but did anybody ever want to bring you into another promotion and bring your voice to their product? Yes, uh, the Bill Watts office through Ken Mantell approached me about going to work for them and I declined. It was a flattering offer, and I knew the Dallas office was declining. I knew it was in trouble, but by then I was in seminary. I was pursuing the ordained ministry, so my future wasn't going to be there anyway. Uh, Had I wanted to stay in that business, uh, I probably needed to take a job like that, but since it wasn't in my future, you know, I just respectfully declined and rode the world-class wave as loyally as I could. Fritz had always been good to me and very fair with me and very kind to me. And I was even there for the first year and a half of Jerry Jarrett uh, when world-class disappeared and it became the USWA and uh, the talent really got cheapened. Uh, and it had to. That's not a criticism of Jarrett. It's just the business was down. Uh, but I knew when it was time and thanked them and, you know, went on my way. Yeah, that uh, USWA integration, uh, we've had Jerry Jarrett on and uh, spoke at length about just, you know, how that all came about, how that went down, and you mentioned stunning Steve Austin and also Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, uh, had a nice little uh, start there in uh, the Texas area, Dallas, Texas, uh, USWA. But when you saw that coming into town and they were trying to catch the magic of what was, 
you know, the phenomenon of world class. Uh, did you think it was just it run its course by that point? Maybe the fan base had kind of grown up now that we lost some Von Eriks, um, and then maybe you know it was kind of changing a little bit as the '90s started to roll in. Yes, you could tell, but we were always hopeful because uh, when Ken Mantell left, George Scott came to the office as the booker for a while, and he came right out of New York. He'd been with what was then called the WWF, and things didn't go well with George. The talent, you know, and the budget wasn't there, and he left, and uh, David Manning was the booker for a while. And I may have these out of order. David may have preceded George Scott, but then they hired Bruiser Brody and his partner, a guy by the name of Buck Robley. And Bruiser was passionate, and Bruiser improved the product and the revenue in the Dallas-Fort Worth area during his tenure. It wasn't back to what it was, but it was on the upswing again uh, until he, you know, ran his course. And then I think that's when Ken Mantell came back in, and that brought hope again that we could restore this and start over. And Ken thought that and really tried to persuade Fritz to do some innovation. But Fritz was already working with Jarrett, you know, to sell the TV and everything to him. And uh, Mantell and Jarrett didn't jive, so that didn't last, you know, even a week or so until Ken was gone. And Jarrett pretty much just did it himself. Yeah, and you know the different, uh, you know the different regimes. Obviously, that was something that, uh, you know, was it was kind of commonplace when it didn't work out. In one way, you'd move on to uh, what would possibly work. But do you have a, a personal favorite of maybe the secondary regimes? Obviously, the heyday uh, being a standout. But are there any other ones that you thought maybe had a little bit more of a chance to be successful that maybe didn't? Well. Uh... You know, I think a lot of guys found success. Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Sunshine and that gig was tremendous. Uh, I just visited with uh, Bobby Fulton last Thursday night. He used to be a part of the Fantastics tag team with Tommy Rogers. Tommy died here a year or so ago, sadly, tragically, in a choking incident. They were a great tag team. Uh, The Simpson brothers uh, were very much crowd favorites. I used them in a TV commercial once, or at least one of them, when uh, I had a little car dealership interest back in those days. Uh, Just a lot of great, great people and talent came through the office. Hollywood John Tatum uh, was a great guy. Uh, You know, Rick Rude was the first world-class champion when they broke away from NWA and declared their own champion. Uh, Jim Coronet was a great heel manager here for a while. Percy Pringle was a tremendous uh, name in the office for years. Uh, Eric Embry did some good work uh, leading the Jarrett regime. So, you know, just a tremendous amount of of good guys, good people. Very sad to see so many of them dead at this point from a variety of reasons because they were all my age and some of them younger. And they just didn't have a long course of life. Definitely crazy and definitely sad uh, to hear. But as you're going through all those names, it's just crazy the amount of talent and the great star power that went through World Cut. But I just wanted to bring it back to David Manning for a second because I was just very curious. What is the story? Did you actually end up saving his life at one point? Well, that was the deal that night. It seems like we were in Fort Worth, 
it may have been in Dallas, but I think it was in Fort Worth, uh, where you know you have the three ropes on any given side of the ring, and you can get your foot caught in them if you twist them just right. And in his case, it was his head. And you can't get choked in those ropes unless you flip somebody upside down because you got to you know, flip one, the top one becomes the middle one, and the middle one becomes the top, your head or your throat's in between. And I don't remember the details of how that happened, but it was right in front of me, and so I instinctively just got up, and it was an easy fix. You just had to grab him by the ankles and turn him back upside down, lift his feet up in the air, and you would free him. So I probably got a lot more credit than I deserved. If it hadn't been me, it could have been anybody else. I was just the closest one there. And I don't remember who the wrestlers were or what they were doing at the time. But they evidently, you know, were engaged off on the other side of the ring. So, Because you always hear that infamous story, you know, you saved his life. But kind of, uh, you know, obviously uh, stories do change over time and over years. But it's funny that you're, you don't remember all details, but you just remember helping him along. Just remember that night. Yeah, David was a a Fritz favorite. He uh, was a very bright young man, great mind for the business. He did good work. It was crazy to say, and you could tell me if I'm wrong or not, but did the pro wrestling business, did world class get you ready for the ministry? In many ways it did. Uh, We had groups of regulars didn't matter how successful the office was at that time or what time of year it was or what the weather was. We had a core group of regulars, and they knew each other, and they stayed in touch with each other. And if somebody was gone, they worried about you. And where is Margie Pike tonight? Uh, you know, get on the phone. Find out what's wrong. Is, is somebody sick? And so it was a community experience. And I was a centerpiece for that just by virtue of my position, so I developed a rapport with these people and would have fun with them and share in their uh, victories and and weep with them in their tragedies, you know. So I learned how to relate to a community of people very different from that which I'd grown up with uh, in a much more affluent environment. And also it taught me how to communicate because all that rapport stuff that I told you about that I had to learn on my own when I started TV has helped me a lot in relating to people and communicating to people. And so many of the ups and downs of life, you know, the tragedies of the Von Erichs, the business issues, the disappointments, the dreams, that's just life in a capsule. So I had a, a laboratory to learn a lot about life and and just loving and navigating people through the journey, which is what a good pastor does. You know, I'm not trying to be a big TV mega preacher. I just want to be a good pastor, and uh, that helped me to do that. And it's funny to, to even think about it, but, you know, wrestling did get you ready for the ministry, and obviously it's funny the way it works out sometimes that even the Slickster, who we saw at the Hall of Fame along with the, the Freebirds, he obviously became a minister after that as well. So it's interesting that the wrestling business can get you ready for something like that, isn't it just uh, almost doesn't seem like it would kind of fit together? You know what I mean? Yes, for many it could be a very incongruent fit. Uh, for others, you know, it's just God can use anything to help grow you up uh, if you'll trust in that presence. 
And it probably was no accident that I got that phone call to be a substitute for three weeks. Uh, It was probably no accident that I walked up to Fritz that night without really giving it much thought and said, hey, how about a shot at TV? Uh, So, you know, God's on top of the mountain. God's in the valley. God's in the mystery. God's in all experiences of life. And if we'll just trust and seek that presence. Now, another thing that was very interesting that I saw was that you were on the Stone Cold Steve Austin show not that long ago. And it's very interesting because, you know, he was kind of a nobody coming up when you were kind of on your way out, but you were, you know, you were a a big time player in world fast and he was basically an unknown at that point. Is it kind of surreal looking back at the star he became and then all of a sudden, boom, you're a guest on his show? Well, you know, it was interesting. I had never been to wrestling when they hired me. And when I retired, I knew it was time, and I had to separate from that to reestablish myself in my new role. And so I lost track of what was going on in that world. You see, Channel 11 took that show off the air that had been a Saturday night mainstay for 30 years. It had been there long before I ever came along. Uh, it went back into the early days of the TV station. may have been longer than that. Three weeks after I retired, they took it off the air. Now, I'd like to brag to you and say that it's because I left. That's not the reason, but it was a contributing factor because the promotion had already declined. Channel 11's ratings were down. They were aware of the management change. They were aware of the ownership change. They were aware of the product declining. And my departure, seeing I never worked for them, I worked for the promotion, got their attention, and that's when they said it's time to pull the plug on this. So the Jared Enterprise suffered immediately from the loss of that bread-and-butter television show. And and that's when Dallas lost its weekly wrestling. Fort Worth had already lost the weekly show uh, at Will Rogers. And so those were just contributing factors. I just, you know, disappeared. And it wasn't because I was mad or there was a problem. I just had a different career to pursue. And that's what I focused on because I was finishing seminary, pastoring small churches, got married, uh, was sent to organize a church from scratch. So I just fell off the planet with regards to wrestling for many years and never realized, you know, what went on. Never paid that much attention to it. Was it cool to be a part of that awesome The Heroes of World Fest documentary? I know the WWE kind of made it a little bit of a copy of it, but it wasn't as good as The Heroes of World Class. Well, there were two of those that were done. WWE did one, mm-hmm. and then Brian Harrison was the producer that did the one that I was in. Uh, he came to my office. I was at a church up in the mid-cities at the time uh, outside of Fort Worth up in Hearst, and he was a great guy. And he, I thought he did a great documentary. The WWE one never acknowledged me. Uh, I was in some of the stuff. You could see me and hear me, but I was never even recognized by name. And I was not as familiar with that production as I was the Brian Harrison one. Yeah, the Heroes of World Class was much better, and uh, I definitely enjoyed it a lot more. It was more in depth, and it was more true to World Class. Did you, you know, did you enjoy being a part of that? Did you feel like you should have been a part of that? 
Yeah, it was fun. Uh, Brian Harrison was a great guy, and of course he sent me a couple of CDs of that. And his work with Gary Hart, the interviews with Gary Hart were just tremendous. And of course he had Akbar, he had Johnny Mantell talking a lot about what his brother had done. Uh, his brother, Ken Mantell, I think left the business pretty bitter and has pretty much been out of sight. Uh, but Johnny did a good job of telling that history. And Kevin was in it. You know, I think it started out with Kevin and Brian going down and just kind of busting into the remnant of the Sportatorium, which was vacant at the time before they tore it down. So it was very well done. That part was very cool how, uh, you know, before they kind of tore it down, they were going through it and stuff. Definitely a cool little trip down memory lane, and, and that was awesome. But as I hit the wind-down button here, I got to ask, do you have a favorite uh, broadcast partner that you – because obviously you know you had a bunch of different partners. Do you have a favorite partner of yours? Not really a favorite. My favorite personality in my whole career was an African-American guy named Armand Hussein. And he was just such a delightful individual. He was funny. He was spontaneous. He was quick-witted. He was fun in the ring. He was fun outside the ring. He was my favorite personality. As far as sharing the mic with people, it was fun to work with Akbar, but that was very rare. He'd just come over and do temporary color and antagonize everybody and then go on for his heel manager role. Frank Dusick did a lot of color with me toward the end. Uh... Uh, until he had a falling out with Jerry Jarrett. Uh, Terrence Garvin, Terry Garvin, was uh, a color guy for a while. He's a nice guy. You know, I didn't have any problems with anybody. But, uh, you know, you just have to establish a rapport with your color people because I was so used to doing the whole thing uh, that I had to learn not to do some things so the color guy could. And, you know, that was a good experience for me. Did you have... A favorite wrestler that you interviewed? Because I know you've done you know a lot of crazy interviews and a lot of fun interviews. Anybody stick out as your favorite? Well, Ric Flair was such a class professional. He was always great to interview. Bruiser Brody was fantastic. The Freebirds were fantastic. Uh, you know, a lot of people really did a good job. Now, I did a lot of interviews, not just the ones you saw, but... The show in Fort Worth was a satellite show. Channel 11 went on the satellite and was kind of like WTBS out of Atlanta. It's, it's seen in a lot of places. Well, the show aired every week from 10 to 11.30 until it expanded in its heyday from 10 to midnight. It was two hours. But in those days when World Class started, the Dallas show was what's called syndicated. And in those days, they just did a bunch of big oversized cassette tapes and sent them in big sealed envelopes to TV stations all around the country and the world that wanted to play the tape. They paid for the rights to play it. Well, it could be on at any time, morning, noon, or night, sometimes more than once a week. Well, we had to to stock all those individual tapes with unique interviews that pertain to the cards coming to those areas. South Texas, San Antonio, Brownsville, Laredo, the Valley, Corpus Christi, wherever we were going. If they were going to Israel, if we went to Boston where we went to the Lynn Municipal Stadium, all those tapes had to have these interviews. And so there were days we'd go to the Channel 39 studio and just do interviews all day. In many ways for some repetitive matches and all the guys are in there 
to fill these tapes. So I just got so tired of doing interviews that uh, they all ran to be the same. And some days I said, I'm not really a personality, I'm just a microphone holder. But we laughed about that. So uh, those kind of got dull. But I remember the standout people who just were so great, like Ric Flair, that they were always a pleasure to be with. I could definitely see that. And speaking of Flair, him versus Terry Von Erich, like you mentioned before, did tremendous business after David passed away, and that was one of the highlights of World Class. Obviously, him winning the NWA World Title and that whole epic feud. What was your thoughts? Is that one of your favorite matches, and is that one of your favorite angles that that would happen in wrestling? Yes, absolutely. That was a pinnacle of my time with them. And had Kerry not been such a screwball, and I don't say that to be as critical as I say it affectionately, but he was a screwball. Uh, He was a live-for-the-moment personality and kept getting himself in trouble, always shot himself in the foot. The promoters didn't trust him. You didn't know if he was going to show up. You didn't know if he was going to be on time. You didn't know what kind of state he would be in with some of the drug issues. Had Kerry had his head screwed on straight, he could have retained that belt much longer than he did. Uh, But even though he got it for a while, that was great fun and a very exciting time. Do you have a favorite match or matches that you called? Maybe, you know, obviously that one was standing, but do you have any other ones that really stick out that you're just like, man, that was great to be a part of that. It was kind of an epic match. Not really. There were just so many very exciting matches, uh, especially with the Von Erickson Freebirds and never knowing what was going to happen next. Uh, the Gino Hernandez-Chris Adams feud was incredible. Uh, I remember one night we were in Fort Worth. It was the Labor Day Wrestling Star Wars, and the loser of the match was going to be hoisted to the roof of the Fort Worth Convention Center, which is a big building, uh, big you know, big basketball arena type thing in a steel cage and have to hang up there for for much of the evening. Well, Gino Hernandez loses the match either by hook or crook, and being the great heel that he was, he has on dress shoes with navy blue socks that are held up by garters around his knees and boxer short underwear that are red. No, they're white with red hearts on them. And so they strip his his clothes off of him and hoist him to the top of the building in his underwear, which is just a spectacle that only Gino could pull off. And that was great fun that night. Uh, so those things kind of stand out, you know, some of the stunts and the antics that great heels could pull off. How about outside of the Sportatorium? Is there one venue that you personally love to call a match in? Oh, you know, I wasn't in all that many. Uh, We went to the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, which is still down there. It's an older version of Will Rogers. It's bigger. And the microphone was dropped out of the ceiling every time you needed it. And it was like the old boxing black and white films that you would see from the 1950s, where the announcer would reach up and grab the microphone out of the air and pull it down to him. Uh, and that's the way it worked down there. That was fun to go down there. Of course, you had a lot of uh, Hispanic-speaking people in the crowd, which made it fun. 
I went to Lawton, Oklahoma a couple of times, and they I didn't know it, but they had a local guy out there that had a big ego and was a big ham, and uh, the fans out there knew him, and they didn't tell him that they were bringing me out there as the TV guy. And they sent me out to greet everybody. It was a big show, and it was a sellout, and he was so offended that this stranger, this kid, would come out and infringe upon his territory. In his defense, nobody had told him. And uh, so he made a scene out of it and tried to belittle me and what have you, and I just stepped back. And my friend Armand Hussein that I mentioned a minute ago was a big disliked heel. And Hussein got so frustrated at the way his friend Mark was treated that he went out there and took the house mic and announced that that announcer called him by name, that he and Hussein had been great friends and business partners for all these years and just wound up turning the guy into a heel in front of his own people so that they would receive me out there. And it was just hilarious to watch the psychology that he used on that. So that was fun. It was a fun building to go out in southwestern Oklahoma, very enthusiastic crowd. So it was great going to Boston. Go ahead. I didn't mean yeah, to interrupt. No, no I'm sorry. No, please tell us about Boston. I know it was a uh, that was a heck of a uh, an experience for you guys to head out to a uh, to kind of. A, I know you sent the tapes out there, but a foreign market. But yeah, tell us about Boston. Well, they had talked Fritz into running to Boston, and Fritz was disgusted with either McMahon or somebody in the Northeast that he was willing to go to Boston. But he was too cheap, bless his heart, to pay the rent for the Boston Garden, which they had lined up. Ken Mantell had it worked out. And we were going to pull the kind of house that the rent wasn't going to be an issue. But they couldn't convince Fritz. Fritz was a small thinker. And so to save money, they go to the Lynn Municipal Stadium, which just torpedoes the opportunity to have the atmosphere and the tradition of the Boston Garden. We still had a great crowd and made money, and they came back and said, Fritz, do you see how well we did, and what could it have been had we been downtown? And Fritz didn't want to hear of it, and I think they went back one time, and that was the extent of it. But it was a great thrill to get to go up there. Yeah, Boston is definitely a, uh, a different place to be, and, and for a product like World Class, uh, I know those rabbit fans up in Boston would definitely embrace you on more than one, more than two, definitely multiple occasions, but as we wrap it up here, I'd love to ask, really, you know, the legacy of something, and I would love to ask you what you feel like the legacy of World Class Championship Wrestling as we look back, you know, nearly 35 years almost, you know, from the, the peak of the uh, World Class phenomenon. But, uh, yeah, if you could tell us, what do you think the legacy is looking back? Well, I think the legacy was this was the launching pad of the wrestling world we have today. Had it not been for world class and what was learned in those years by others who took advantage of it, uh, we might not have what you have today, which is the incredible WWE. And there are those who would say we'd be better off without it. I'm not one of those. I'm not in position to make that kind of judgment. But with the emergence of the WWE and then, of course, Ted Turner, too, uh, you lost all the regional territories. And so you lost a farm system of great talent development. So there have been advantages and there have been disadvantages. But it all started with the syndicated television of world-class championship wrestling. That's what revolutionized the business that we know today, and that would be the legacy. That's fantastic. Do you think that world-class 
could have pulled off a near seven-hour show like WWE did with WrestleMania. Oh, easy. We did that uh, at Reunion Arena many times. Uh, we sold out Reunion Arena, turned people away. We did that at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. We did that at Texas Stadium several times. Uh, yeah, they could have done that easily. Well, that's uh, that's excellent, and that's a great way to end it. But before we do, please share with us and the listeners and the fans of the two-man power trip of wrestling and also of world-class championship wrestling just where they can find some more information about you yourself, Mr. Mark Lorenz. Well, I'm not on social media. In my vocation, I respect a certain degree of privacy, but there is some stuff on Wikipedia. There's some stuff on YouTube. Uh, Bill Mercer and I went to New York a year and a half ago and did a deal for hot spots called Voices of World Class, which you can purchase online. There is a local promoter here out of Fort Worth named David Fuller, a real nice young man who has invited me to come out and do some things with him. I did a deal in advance of the uh, WrestleMania surge in Dallas last Thursday night. His little promotion has joined with the resurgent NWA, and he sold out a beautiful, large, old movie theater that has now been converted into a multi-purpose venue He sold it out last Thursday night. Charlie Haas was there in the main event, and it was very exciting to get to go and do some TV for him and meet with the fans. So that would be my best way to answer your question, unless you want to come to church, and I've had a lot of fans and wrestlers do that over the years. Well, if we were in Texas, we would definitely uh, take a a walk down there and uh, and check it out, but... We really, we really appreciate you spending time with us tonight. It's, uh, it's late here on the East Coast, but it's not early enough to, uh, to stop the conversation on World Class. But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Enjoyed the trip down memory lane. Thank you very much. Okay, grace and peace to you and your audience. Thank you. Thank Have you a good night. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.